Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It is St. Patrick's Day on this Friday, and we are so honored to have with us Marion Harkin, who is the European Union Parliament member representing Ireland. She also earlier served in Ireland's parliament uh, and is a member, uh, of course, of the EU Parliament's Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee. We are so glad to have you with us, Marion. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to start with the Brexit vote and the consequence that a lot of uh, financial institutions are talking about moving from London. London to some other city that could be potentially uh, give them passporting rights. Mm. Dublin has emerged as a popular option. What is Dublin doing to make sure they are the most popular option? Well, the passporting issue is going to be major for the city of London. And as you say, we are in the market. And already a number of companies have said that they're going to base uh, some of their operations from Dublin. We're not getting them all. Some of them are going to Luxembourg. And in fact, there was a bit of a spat recently between one of the Irish ministers and the Luxembourg minister uh, about the regulatory system. About AIG, right? That's about right. A- it had to it, do with AIG, the had. insurance company, moving their European headquarters yeah, to Luxembourg. That's it. Uh, and it's really about supervisory uh, you know, systems, who is going to supervise the regulation. And at European level, that is not harmonised yet. So it's every man, woman or country for themselves to some extent. Wait, wait, I, I'm not sure that I totally understand this. In other words, it means that uh, the different regulatory bodies can offer lighter regulation of certain banking institutions if they come Supervision, to Supervision, right? Yeah, they, they are... They're not supposed to, but the supervision isn't there to the extent that it needs to be to make sure that we have a harmonized regulatory system. So in other words, as banks are deciding where to move their headquarters uh, to remain uh, in this sort of passporting system, that's a major consideration. Well, it is. It has emerged. And the the European um, body who's in charge of this also raised concerns, not just the Irish minister. Um, and it's where we're at at the moment. So, you know, we're setting out our stall. We've already got a number of companies who are coming to Ireland. And, you know, English speaking, remain within the EU, etc. So it's, it's going to be interesting over the next couple of months. Obviously, the British want to remain within the single market, but you can't do that unless, you know, you have the four freedoms and they said they don't want it. So which are the firms that have already uh, chosen Dublin for their passporting rights and which are the biggest firms that are up for grabs? Well, I know Barclays is talking about coming to Ireland. I think they have said they will. There are a number of other insurance companies, to be perfectly honest. I can't remember some of the names right now, but I know Barclays is. And I think a lot of companies are still making final decisions. But I think we might be expecting good news within the next week or two from one or two companies anyway. I wonder if we could just focus on the uh, political mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, rumbling, the uh, tremors after Brexit and when this Article 50 gets triggered because uh, there's this thing that's called Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and Scotland and they have said they don't want to leave the European yeah. Union. 
uh, Sinn Féin, the political uh, party in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, has made uh, no uh, uh, illusions that it would like to see the island of Ireland mm -hmm. united. Yes. Will uh, this push that to happen? That's an interesting question because there, there are still some unknowns. But you're quite right. Northern Ireland voted to remain within the EU, as did Scotland. Uh, we have something called the Good Friday Agreement, which guarantees if you are born on the island of Ireland that you can access Irish citizenship and, by extension, EU citizenship. Um, so the Good Friday Agreement, is it's an international agreement and it is framed within the context of the European Union. So maybe they can do both. Well, we have to wait and see. I'm not sure. I don't think Sinn Féin has called for a border poll yet, though they may. Um, it's hard to know, but they've certainly been very successful in the recent elections there. But it's there's everything is up for grabs at one level. And at another level, really, if you're going to look to a united Ireland, in my opinion, for what it's worth, is you've got to um, put in place... A, you know, if you like, a programme or a system whereby people want to be part of a united Ireland. You cannot drive people against their will. And there is no doubt that if we have a hard Brexit, that to some extent, you know, copper fastens the border or could, and we do not want it under any circumstances. Uh, Marion, I want to turn to your role as a member of the European Union's Parliament, uh, the Economic Monetary Affairs Committee, in particular the Euro. We've been hearing a lot about uh, France's populist upsurge and sort of the potential for their leaving the joint uh, currency. But uh, we've been talking recently about Italy and how they're probably a more likely candidate to try to ditch the euro than any others. How much discussion do you have in the EU Parliament about this? Well, I think that discussion is really beginning to open up now. You talk about Italy, the populist movement there, as we call them, is the five star movement. And they are talking, you know, about leaving the euro. So I think, you know, countries now that perhaps would never have looked at uh, the euro, its pluses and minuses are beginning to do so. I believe the Netherlands recently commissioned a study on the euro. And I think while I, I see the euro remaining for the next number of years, I think uh, the future of the euro will be determined to some extent by what happens the EU. Juncker recently uh, came up with his five options for the EU. In other words, do we integrate further? Do we have a, what do you call a coalition of the willing where those who want to integrate further do so and the rest stand back? Do we pair back, give more power back to member states, etc.? Do we just remain as we are? So there are a lot of options there and I think that the political option will determine what happens with the euro. Uh, with this particular committee, do you talk about contingency plans if there is a vote to uh, exit the joint currency? No, that hasn't been raised. But, um, you know, we have to wait and see. Uh, in the Netherlands, the centre held. We can see that. Will that happen in France? It seems as if Macron, who's the centrist candidate, now might even, they say, win the first round. Up to this, they thought Le Pen might. We have a way to go yet. But if 
if it holds in France, I think that means things return to some kind of stability for a while. But you mentioned Italy, it's down the line. So it's a time of change in Europe. And I think Jean-Claude Juncker, who's the president of the Commission, is trying to shape that change politically before events overtake us. Well, we look forward to having you guide us and give us information about those events in the future. I want to thank you for being with us. Marion Harkin, a member of the European Union Parliament's Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee. Joe Mysack, editor, Bloomberg Brief, uh, Municipal Markets. You know, I'm just, I, I jumped the gun there, Joe, because I'm just eager to get through a bunch of things with you. I want you to start off by telling us about President Donald Trump's uh, budget proposal and what this would mean for Amtrak and the Gateway Project. Tell us what it is and what could happen. Well, the Gateway Project is a big rebuilding of infrastructure in New York and New Jersey. It will include a new tube under the uh, river. And the price tag on this is about $25 billion. In the states of New York and New Jersey, after several years of discussion and argumentation, uh, finally decided, yes, this is a good thing, we'll do this. The federal government is supposed to provide about half. So, you know, it's going to be $24, 25000000000 billion, probably more, as you know, and the federal government, 10 to 12 billion. But now uh, the uh, people at Amtrak are saying, well, wait a minute, we, you know, the federal government may be cutting back in this area. So uh, they are upset and, uh, you know, obviously they, they are lobbying heavily to uh, uh, make sure they get the money. To put this into context, I believe that the U.S. Department of Transportation already provides about what, two, $2.3 billion each year for yeah. the uh, commuter rail and uh, bus rapid transit program. Exactly. And, and you know, it's funny, in the, uh, in the Trump uh, program, the Trump budget, it looks like uh, money for mass transit especially uh, is being cut back. And that's, you know, of concern to so many states and municipalities. If you're just defining infrastructure as highways and bridges, uh, you're really taking out a big element. But, you know, this has been a uh, a sort of conservative hobby horse, if you will, to, uh, you know, move against mass transit wherever you can. And of course, the, the uh, cities, higher density, uh, you know, believe in mass transit. They believe in buses and also light rail and regular rail. Well, I mean, there's an Amtrak study that's cited in the Bloomberg story that says uh, that the Gateway Project would generate $4 for everyone spent and also drive the regional co- economy because we got international competitors in the region, in the in the world, right? London, Tokyo, Berlin, they're all modernizing their transport hubs. Uh, if you don't get this new tunnel, uh, what do you think happens? I mean, this tunnel is uh, really uh, hit by Hurricane Sandy. That was back in, in, in 2012. Long overdue. Uh, you, you need the new tunnel to bring in all the commuters from New Jersey and, you know, business goes back and forth. And this is really a uh, 
it's almost astonishing. But, you know, the thing about infrastructure finance uh, is that the uh, so much of what the federal government does is make sure that uh, uh, everyone gets something. So, you know, you have highways in the frontier. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess you have to, you know, balance the interest because obviously you need, you know, all the political help you can get in Washington. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about New Jersey a little bit more specifically because I want to understand what is happening. Uh, I understand that it's called structurally imbalanced. Is that a new term? No, no. Structurally imbalanced. It's when uh, states or municipalities, uh, how can I put it gracefully? I was going to say when the cantilever when the cantilever on the building doesn't work, that's structurally imbalanced. One side is heavier than the other and it falls. That's not good. No, that's not good. No, uh, you know, you're spending more than you're taking in. And uh, you have budget items that have to go out and the revenue is not there. So in this case, what the what New Jersey is doing um, is they're sort of short sheeting the bed. They're going to pay two and a half billion dollars toward the um, pension fund when, in fact, they should be paying five billion this year uh, or, you know, in the new budget year. So um, structurally imbalanced. They, you know, they keep they keep playing with the pension system is the problem here. And this goes back to 1997, if you want. Am I am I right in reading this that it is a one hundred and thirty six billion dollar shortfall? Yes, they have the uh, they have about thirty seven and a half percent or forty percent around there of the money they need. So they you know they they uh, it's the they, least funded pension system among the fifty states. Right, and they have about eighty one and a half eighty two billion dollars in assets. But what they need is about 215 billion. So there you go. That's why you have that big gap there. And S&P says structurally imbalanced because you really have to make these payments every year because it adds up. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I think that's the, it happens for people with credit cards as, as well. It eventually adds up, doesn't you, it? You keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off and it, you know, un- unless you're really raking in the money with all your investments, you know, you have to do this and new jersey has been has been woeful in putting aside that money on a regular basis the politicians just uh you know they find it almost impossible and on the, on the other hand when the pension funds are doing well they always have to try to tap them right somehow uh, use them as collateral or buy uh bonds that then support some other government activity they're, uh, they're obsessed in new jersey really it's been you know as i say back to 1997 1998 when the state sold uh the, the largest pension obligation bond ever back then even though they didn't need to well we always need you and your guidance thanks very much joe mysack editor for bloomberg briefs municipal markets you've got to read it go to briefs go on the bloomberg Well, a border adjustment tax, personal and corporate tax reform. Brian Reardon is a senior advisor to Venn Strategies. He's also former special assistant to President George W. Bush for economic policy and was principal tax aide at the president's National Economic Council. Brian Reardon, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the border adjustment tax. How do you believe it would work and what would be some of its ramifications? Sure. So I think one of the challenges that we have is, 
in talking about the border adjustment, it's gotten all the attention. And what's lost is the broader plan. So it's not actually a border adjustment tax. It's a border adjustment of the new cash flow tax that's envisioned in the House blueprint. So what they're going to do is they're first going to repeal the business income tax that everybody uses right now. Second, they're going to impose a cash flow tax, which means that you get full expensing. It means that we're moving to territorial. It means you get lower rates, 20% for corporations, 25% for pastors. And then what they're going to do is they're going to border adjust it just the same way that all our trading partners border adjust their value-added taxes. So the bottom line is that you're going to pay lower rates, and when you produce something here, you're no longer going to pay a higher tax than, say, something that's imported from another country and brought here and sold here in the United States. So it's going to put U.S. producers and U.S. workers on a level playing field with everybody else in the world. By doing the same border adjustment to their tax codes that that they do, we're going to do it here. And is there evidence that this will have the desired effect to increase manufacturing and production in the United States? Well, and that's another thing that you got to be real careful about. So the pro-growth, pro-worker, pro-wage provisions in the plan are the lower rates, the move to expensing. So if you build a factory, you buy a piece of equipment, you've got inventory, you get to write it off immediately. You don't have to depreciate it over, in the case of buildings, you know, almost 40 years. So it's, that's the part that's going to make investment in the United States, production in the United States more attractive, which means you get more investment which means higher wages for workers, more jobs. That's where the workers are going to be better off. Those are the provisions that do that. The border adjustment just does three things. One, it because we run trade surpluses, it raises some revenue so we can get the rates down to more competitive levels. Two, in moving to territorial, right, where we're just going to look at business activity in the United States from now on, we're no longer going to chase business income when it's earned in overseas jurisdictions you got to figure out a way to enforce that, right, so that businesses don't continue to shift their income to lower tax jurisdictions like Ireland. The border adjustment does that because what it does is effectively say, you can move your income, you can move your IP, you can move all that stuff wherever you want, but as long as you're bringing product back to the United States to sell it, we're going to make sure that taxes are paid at the appropriate level on those products. So it creates the enforcement to the territorial. And then the third thing it does is, as I said, it balances out the tax. So if you produce something here, you produce something elsewhere and you import it back here, the tax is going to be the same. So American workers will no longer be at a disadvantage. Mr. Ridden, I wonder if you could maybe uh, spell out the likelihood that this will get passed in the form that you describe, because it seems as though there are a lot of things that hinge on each other. And uh, once you open the negotiating process, uh, is there any assurance or any uh, view that we're going to get what you describe? Well, there are no guarantees in life, but one of the things that we're blessed with here is strong leadership in the form of Speaker Ryan, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady. They are determined to make this happen. And as you mentioned, this is a big lift. I mean, what we're talking about here is a dramatic reform of how we tax business income. It's taking our tax system from one of the worst to, in my mind, one of the best in the world. It'll immediately make our tax system much more attractive for businesses than anybody else in the world. And it's not going to be easy to get it across the finish line. Washington doesn't do big, dramatic reforms easily. But why so is that? I mean, I, let, me, let me just stop you there. Why, why should it be that challenging when you have a Republican majority in the House, a Republican majority, albeit a small one, in the Senate, and a Republican in the White House? Well, I'll give you an example. So, 
you know, I work extensively with private companies, smaller companies, pastors, etc. And when you talk to folks like that, and you're talking about a new idea like this, it takes them time to get comfortable with it, right? They have to understand what it means in all its ramifications for their business in order to be supportive. So they got to look at not just the border adjustment, but the lower rates, the move to expensing, the interest changes that they're doing, all that stuff. They've got to figure all that out, and that just takes time. The opposition just have to figure out that they don't like one part of it, and then they get you know activated to fight that one part. So getting the business community behind something that's dramatic like this and new, frankly, it takes a little bit of time. And as I mentioned, we're fortunate that we've got strong leadership over in the House where we're going to have the time to get the business community behind it. And I think you've seen that over the last month. You know, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of people in the business community expressing support for what the House is trying to do, because it really is a pro-American. It, 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 it's not, you know, it's not tariffs. It's not protectionism. All it's doing is saying, you know, the rest of the world for the last 30 years has been improving their tax codes and making it more attractive for businesses to invest there rather than here. We've been kind of stuck in place. And all we're doing is exactly what the rest of the world has been doing, improve our tax code, make it much more efficient, make it much simpler, and make it much more attractive for people to invest here rather than someplace else. Thanks, for we got to leave if it we, there. Brian Reardon, right. a former special assistant to President George W. Bush for Economic Policy, principal tax aide at the President's National Economic Council. Imagine a third-generation family business that goes public and now has a market cap of more than $2 billion. Here to tell us about it is our own David Scanlon, Managing Editor for Canada, and he joins us from Toronto. David, a pleasure. Tell us about uh, Danny uh, Reese. Who is he? And tell us about his business. I'm saving you to give us the secret. Very interesting story. Uh, Canada Goose is slowly becoming a, uh, a household name for its high-end uh, parkas and coats. And it really started off as creating gear for northern explorers. It was a very small company. Uh, enter uh, Danny Reese into the scene 20 years ago. He just finished school. He was a English and philosophy major, had no interest in joining the family business. He decided he'd help out for a few months to finance some travel to Europe, like a lot of people do after they leave school. Uh, but he decided to stick around, and 20 years later, you have this company that, as you say, is worth more than uh, $2 billion, and uh, he's done very well for himself, given their pretty strong debut, uh, their IPO, rather, on the New York and Toronto exchanges yesterday. Yeah, well, I was looking at the stats, and the first day of trading, the stock was up 40%. It's uh, continued its ascent uh, up uh, 26 now up uh, Seven percent. This will make a very happy group of investors, including those from Bain and Company. Tell us about their involvement. Yes, well, they bought the they bought seventy uh, percent of the firm uh, four years ago. At the time, the company was valued at about uh, two hundred and fifty million, and now, as you say, it's over two billion. So, in just a couple of short years, they've done very well. As has uh, Danny Reese. We spoke to him yesterday, and uh, you know, he was able to pocket about uh, seventy million Canadian just from the IPO for uh, cutting his stake a little bit. But the, he still has a sizable uh, portion of the company, about twenty four percent, which is worth. Uh, 
another $550 million is Canadian dollars. So combined, he's got almost a half a billion U.S. dollars. So he's done very well for a guy who was – the initial plan was just to write fiction. So he's come a long way. Well, it's turned into an, uh, a wonderful reality for him. Uh, the products, the prices, and the popularity. Uh, give us the detail. So, as I mentioned, they make these uh, high-end parkas for sub-zero temperatures. But what they've managed to do is transition to uh, sort of a three-season clothing company, if you will. So it's not just the expensive parkas, which do very well in the harsh Canadian winter. What is an expensive parka? How much are we talking about? $1,000 Canadian? No, about 900 to 1,000 U.S. They can run $1,500 Canadian, so they are not they are not uh, cheap. But what they're doing now is they're branching into lighter uh, coats, which you might wear in you know spring and fall in New York or Paris or Tokyo, and that's where the growth uh, is going to come from. Their the market is uh, getting a little bit saturated in Canada, for example, but they think that if they can go three season, uh, they can sell more coats and and do better, and that's why it's it's trading at such a high multiple right now uh, following the IPO. Store locations. They want to open more brick-and-mortar stores. They do. They have two right now, one in Toronto and one in New York. They plan to open a couple more next year. When I spoke with Danny yesterday, he was hinting Paris and, and Tokyo seem like logical next steps, but they may add another 15 to 20 over the years. Their, their approach is that you've got to be uh, have some bricks-and-mortar presence to show off your brand, especially in areas where you are not known. At the same time, you can augment that with some online sales. That's where they're going. What did Bain bring to the company? In addition to the money. Yeah, I think they brought some global uh, expertise, and they think they've helped them develop the brand. And it really is a brand. It's it's retail, it's fashion. It you know it can be fickle, uh, but there is uh, something about the uh, sort of that rugged Canadian brand that they are they have captured, and they're exporting it around the world. And we'll see how they do. Well, made in Canada, and that's something that Danny Reese has said he wants to continue to do. He does. I asked him about, you know, the possible border tax and, you know, Trump's push to get more manufacturing in the United States. He's saying, no, part of our identity, part of our culture is that we are made in Canada and we want to stick with that. Montclair can be viewed as a competitor, the the French company, I beg your pardon. Um, Is there a uh, a conscious uh, sort of look over the shoulder at what has happened to Montclair as an international brand? I think so. They're very much in the same uh, in the same uh, segments. Uh, they've, they're doing very well in Europe, but uh, Canada Goose seems very determined to to go right at them in their home market. They're very interested in uh, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Italy. So it'll be a very interesting competition. Right. I beg your pardon. Uh, Milan-based. Uh, they're in Italy. Montclair. That's right. Yes. I, I beg your pardon. The stock there is up uh, 21 percent so far this year. Uh, as the company grows. Uh, do they have the management team in order to manage that growth? You know, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, Danny's been there for a long time, but it was a much smaller company then. He was, you know, sales of five, ten million back then. They're closer to four hundred million now, and so Bain they have brought in a lot of new people with a lot of um, uh, marketing expertise, a lot of brand development, and and that's that's really their challenge now is try to export this brand. Well, not only that, but I I noted from your piece, uh, taking a look at their uh, succession policy or decision-making process for that, uh, Danny Reese spoke to that issue. 
Um, yes, well, he's certainly um, aware that he, you know, he needs uh, he needs help. It's a very um, it's a new company. It's a small board. Uh, he talked later uh, to me about um, expanding that, bringing in more expertise, uh, bringing more women. Interestingly, interestingly, there's not a single uh, woman on the board right now, and he's aware of that. He thinks diversity uh, is important to him, and you'd have to uh, imagine, I don't have the stats, but I'd imagine a lot of those coats are being bought by women, so that would make sense. Well, I was just uh, going to refer to the third-generation family business curse that many people describe. Oh, right, yes, yeah. and I think he he figures that he's he's going to be okay because it was never preordained. You know, a lot of times you get third generation sons and daughters who are sort of forced into taking over the company when they don't have much interest. Uh, In his case, it was the opposite. He had no interest, but he sort of fell in love with it and sort of developed passion for it. All right. Well, uh, David, just last point to you, David. Do you have a Canada goose? I I I do not. They must be for fashionistas because, boy, you see them almost everywhere, and it's not that cold. Yeah, no, and, and everyone who has them uh, really raves about them. So next winter, maybe, Pam. All right. Well, you can aspire, <laughs> as did Danny Reese, aspiring to be a writer, now a millionaire running uh, Canada Goose. Thanks very much. Uh, the shares of Canada Goose up about uh, 6.5% right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.